All right. Good morning, everybody. Um, as I get set up here, uh, my name is Michael Stevens. I'm one of the uh, missional community leaders here at Redemption, and most of you probably know this, but I'm not the guy who's normally up here. Uh, Jeremy Carr, our lead te- teaching pastor, asked me to speak today because apparently I didn't screw it up enough last time. So we'll see if we can fix that today. Uh, but we are going to, we've been in a series through Deuteronomy. And when he asked me to speak, he said, well, you can either continue through the series or you can pick something new. And so I thought the last time I did this, Actually, the hardest part was picking something to preach on, right? So I thought, well, I'll just continue through the series. That's half the work is done. All I have to do is I know what I'm preaching on and do it. And then I got into Deuteronomy. And I'm not going to say I regret it, but I learned a lot. And it took a very long time. And so I'm going to try to kind of take this passage that we're going over today and make it make sense to us. Uh, there's a lot in it. And we're going to cover a big chunk of Deuteronomy chapter 4, which could really, in all honesty, be split up into at least 10 or 15 different sermons. Um, But we're just going to go by really quick, hit the main points, and then hopefully that will raise some questions that you guys in your MCs can look over or raise some questions that you guys on your own can go look into because it did for me, and I'm sure it will for you. Um, So... Uh, We're going to pick up where Jeremy left off last week, and we're going to read Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 through 31. So as you turn there, I'll try to briefly summarize what we've seen so far in the book of Deuteronomy and what we might expect in the future. So it's my hope that this context will help us better understand the message that Moses is communicating to the Israelites uh, in this chapter, and and additionally what God is trying to communicate to us through the preservation of, of this writing, right? So Deuteronomy overview is essentially a collection of three sermons that Moses delivered to the Israelites just before they were to enter the promised land of Canaan, right? They just spent 40 years in the desert wilderness after fleeing Egypt, and Moses is now near his death, and he knows it. So they're standing outside of Canaan. God has told Moses that he's going to not, he's not going to enter the land. So Moses knows, like, hey, my time's limited, so... What's he going to do? He's going to leave the Israelites, the people he's been leading for 40 years, with, with uh, three things. So we can assume that they're pretty important, right? He had 40 years with these people, and now that he could have talked about this if this was eh, not a big deal. But now he's saying, I'm about to die, so this is important. So in chapter 4, verses 15 through 31, we're actually near the end of Moses' first of three sermons that are recorded in Deuteronomy. So uh, we'll go ahead and... Read the text and pray. So if you didn't catch it, it's Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 31. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you. 
And he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God has given for you an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over the Jordan and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing anything that is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to broke so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there... You will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him, if you search him, if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you're in tribulation, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to come and worship you through song, worship you you through uh, proclaiming and studying your word. I pray that you help this this passage and this this, overarching theme of Deuteronomy and and really uh, the Old Testament. I I pray that you make it make sense to us in a way that, that points to Christ, that points to you, that points to your character. Father, I pray that you uh, set aside our own reservations that we have about this. And, uh, and speak to us anyway, that you soften our hearts and that you, uh, you let us hear despite our own misgivings. Uh, we thank you for today and just uh, we're ready to hear from you. In your name, amen. So, C.S. Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling, around, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So C.S. Lewis really hits a nail on the head with this one, and it's amazing that we as a people continually seek things other than God to please us, things to satisfy our deepest need for worth and significance. And intellectually, we can claim that our significance and and worth is in Christ's work for us, But in reality, most of us are in this kind of perpetual tug of war between our our desires that we want and what we think God's desires for us are. So we look at things like the law, which is presented and reiterated so many times in Deuteronomy and the whole of of the Pentateuch, really, and we just see rules. And everything is a do or a do not, right? And in the words of Kanye West, why everything that's supposed to be bad make me feel so good. <laughs> that's right, we quoted Kanye. So to modern secular Americans, these rules of Christianity, they're very confining, right? These are the things that are supposed to be bad, but it's, it's kind of what we desire. It's that tug of war back and forth. So they, they ask these rules, ask too much. They're unrealistic or they're archaic. And even modern Christians who believe in the redemptive work of Christ tend to view Mosaic laws as 
unnecessary and not applicable to today. And in both of these groups of people, there's a common tendency to refer to the God of the Old Testament and then the God of the New Testament as if they were two different entities. In doing this, there's also a tendency to just completely ignore the Old Testament and to write off God's precepts in favor for our own selfishness, our own desires. But it's when we realize that God's never-changing character is evident not despite the Mosaic laws, but especially in the Mosaic laws and the covenant he made with the Israelites, that we begin to truly understand really the heart of the gospel. So we begin to understand who we are and what God has done for us through Christ. And our response to that good news is not some aversion of rules, right? It's not disregarding the Old Testament as archaic or longing for those things which we're so easily pleased. But our response is a deep gratitude for a freedom that we're given in Christ that actually leads to these good works. So with that, we're going to focus today on God's covenant with the Israelites. Specifically, we're going to explore three of the things that this text teaches us. Um, so we'll see that, number one, God's covenant with the Israelites reveals his unimaginable glory, that God's covenant with the Israelites reveals his perfect righteousness, and that God's covenant with the Israelites reveals his relentless love. So we're going to look at God's unimaginable glory, God's perfect righteousness, and God's relentless love. So first, God's covenant with the Israelites reveals his unimaginable glory. So we know, we know that God's glory is unimaginable, right? Paul says that that a taste of God's glory can be seen in creation. This was Romans 1.20, right? In, in Psalm 19.1-4, we even hear that, that the heavens are proclaiming his handiwork. We don't even need the Bible to tell us this, really, because we'll just, I'll just give you a few more examples to help us realize just how unimaginable God's glory is. On the microscopic scale, we see cells divide, right? We see these, poly, these proteins being made. We don't know how or why, but they create new cells. They come together through many chemical-induced processes, then life is created. And I was going to go into a whole spiel on that, but uh, my wife told me not to, um, <laughs> about polypeptide chains. But on the macroscopic scale, we see just the vastness of the universe, right? We see just how little we are as compared to the rest of the universe. Uh, recently, uh, probe, space probe Voyager 1 that we launched, launched uh, 30 years ago just exited our solar system, right? It took 30 years for the space probe going about 10.5 miles per second to get to the edge of just our solar system, which is one of about 200 billion solar systems in the Milky Way. And the Milky Way is one of about 100 billion galaxies in the universe. We are small. We are very small. So we see astrobodies in the universe that defy everything we know about physics, right? So we see these bodies... Uh, and we, we, maybe they're galaxies or they're asteroids or whatever they are, but, but they have an orbit, right? We can describe things, orbit based, things orbits based on their gravity. Everything with mass has gravity. We know this. We know if we throw a ball, it's going to fall, right? But these things are defying all the rules of gravity. So it led to the question, like, what's out there? What's holding these things together? Why, why is this not behaving like it should? Well, scientists have hypothesized the existence of dark matter, right? And that's amazing because there's something out there that we can't see, something that is literally holding the universe in place, and we have no way to measure it. We have no way to feel it. It doesn't interact with light, but it's there, and we know it's there because if it weren't, we wouldn't be here, right? And so we see we can get just like a taste of God's glory in this because he's given us 
all these amazing things that we can't even, generation upon generation upon generation, can't even begin to explain the complexities of God. Right? He's created this thing, and we see how detailed he is in the microscopic world, and we see how incredibly vast and huge God is when we look at the universe. And this is just a taste of his glory, according to the Bible. So we see that God's glory is big, right? But we also know that God's glory necessarily surpasses the glory seen in his creation. In the beginning of this passage that we just read, we see that Moses is warning the Israelites not to be drawn away from the true glory of God and and to be entranced with creation, right? He says, don't look up at the moon and the stars and the sun and the hosts of heaven and worship them. Don't worship these creatures. Don't make carved images that are like these creatures that I've given you. Yes, they reflect my glory, but no, they are not my glory. We see that even those who are not in relationship with God can experience a taste of his glory. Anyone can sit here and appreciate the mysterious beauty of music. Anyone can stare at amazement in the stars or be enthralled by these details in the fabric. So if those tastes or reflections were the extent, the whole summation of God's glory, then what do we as Christians have to live for? So there must be something more to experience God that we'll soon know when we're actually in that perfect communion with him. So then it logically follows that to worship God's creation is to limit the glory that God deserves. So you don't open up your car to repair something and get frustrated with the accountant who filed your paperwork when you bought it. You get frustrated with the engineers, the people who created it, right? Or to believe that Michelangelo's talent is fully summated in his depiction of the creation of Adam is to ignore the rest of the Sistine Chapel. And beyond that, it's to ignore everything else he is as a person. Similarly, to believe that the glory of God is limited to what we have or can measure or experience, to what we can sense, is to deny him his true glory. We see even cows huddle against the fence before we ever feel a drop of rain, right? They know it's coming. We see dogs know earthquakes are going to happen before we ever feel a tremor. So do you really believe that God is limited to only things humans can sense? So even in warning us against serving creation rather than the creator, we see that God is a God of unimaginable glory. So that was kind of a a fairly long point. And it barely scratches the surface, but really that's that's kind of that's kind of the point, right? That that God's the reflection of God's glory is just barely scratching the surface of what His glory actually is. So we move to point two, and we see from the text that God's covenant with the Israelites reveals His perfect righteousness. So if we look back at verse 21, we see that the Lord was angry with Moses because of, the, because of the Israelites. But why? Well, we see that during the time in the desert, the Israelites had failed to obey God on several occasions, and they had hard and untrusting hearts. God had given them statutes and laws which they failed to uphold. And those statutes were a reflection of his perfect righteousness. His perfect righteousness demanded perfect righteousness from the Israelites. We read further that God is forbidding Moses to enter the promised land, the good land, because of what the Israelites have done. Not only, not only to the laws of, sorry, not only do the laws of God point to His righteousness, but the fulfillment of His covenant points to His righteousness. The very fact that He didn't allow Moses to enter shows that there is a good and evil. There's right and there's wrong, and there's righteousness and unrighteousness. He demanded that the Israelites not sin, that they uphold their end of the covenant, 
the stipulations in place were that of obedience to the law. And we know that they didn't do that. We, we just said it, right? But it's amazing that even in the punishment, we see God's perfect righteousness. Because what righteousness is there if sin goes unpunished? Thirdly, regarding God's perfect righteousness, we see that God does not break his covenants. God cannot or does not go against his word. If we skip down to verse 31, we see that God will uphold the covenant he made with these Israelites' fathers. So it's important to keep in mind that Moses at this point is speaking to second-generation Israelites. The people had been wandering in the desert for 40 years, and so it's like when you started on a journey in the Oregon Trail, half the people died, new babies were born, and you got dysentery. And that's essentially what we see here. So these Israelites to whom he was speaking were actually the second generation for the most part. So then we see God saying he won't forgive forget the covenant that he swore to your fathers. And that's why we see that. So even though those with whom God had covenanted were no longer alive, he still fulfilled his promise. And not only that, but he fulfilled his promise despite their sin and their children's sin. So you might be asking yourself then, can somebody be unwillingly entered into a covenant? And that's something we actually discussed at length at our MC, uh, at our missional community last week, but suffice, suffice it to say that the answer is yes, right? Um, it used to occur all the time uh, with kings and their vassals, right? And it still happens today. Children are entered into a covenant with their parents. That's a good example. People are entered into a covenant with their governments. So imagine that we're back in, say, World War II. Japan surrenders, but the guy down the street, he's like, I'm not, no, I'm not going to accept that. So he goes over to Japan and continues to fight. Is he justified in murdering people over there? Absolutely not, right? Because the government is his covenant head. The government represented him and made that agreement and said, now all my people must follow. Whether you're willing or not, or whether you wanted to or not, that's now the law. You're in that covenant. That's not to say that we can't or don't willingly and knowingly enter into covenants, but that's just a quick example of sometimes when we maybe don't. So we move to our final point. That God's, co- that God's covenant with the Israelites reveals his unrelenting love. So I know what you're thinking. How is holding people to a perfect standard of the covenant of works love? Well, as we discussed, Moses took the punishment for the Israelites, right? Verses 29 through 31 assures us that those who have given into their desires will return and obey God. Verse 31 literally says that the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant to your fathers that he swore to them. And this is when somebody probably is thinking or might say to themselves, well, mercy is great and all, but that's not exactly unrelenting love. And you'd be right. So we're going to go on, and and we see that Moses bore the consequence of Israel's sin. The covenant had to be fulfilled, right? That's that's how we know it it was done. But, But what about us? Here's where it helps to understand a little bit about how covenants were actually made or sworn in the ancient Near East, right? In those days, and you, and you can see several examples of this in the Bible, uh, when a servant or somewhere, someone of a lesser status, uh, you know, that vassal maybe that we refer to, is making a covenant with a king or someone of higher status, a vertical covenant, if you will, there was a, a certain ritual that took place, right? And that ritual included slaughtering an animal into pieces and basically aligning them 
on making an aisle. So they, they sacrifice this animal, and when you take the covenant, you swear an oath to, to, the, to, the, to the king or to whomever is of greater status, and then you walk through, you walk through those, those, those animal pieces, representing that this is me if I break the covenant. This is what you're going to do to me, and this is what I deserve if I don't hold my end of the bargain, right? So you had to recognize that if the stipulations of the covenant were broken, that the, that the person who swore the oath, like the animal, would actually be torn into pieces. So the covenant was not met, and the price was blood. So let's look back, now that we have an idea of how covenants used to be kind of sworn or pledged, uh, let's look back for a moment at Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, verses 7 through 17, God has made a covenant with Abraham to give him offspring, right? We see that Abraham, we see Abraham ask God in verse 8 how he can be sure that he will get what God promised. And then we see God instructing Abraham to set up the animals for that covenant ritual, which we just talked about. So Abraham is standing there. And standing there is God makes the covenant with him. God is saying, you're going to have your children, and, and I'm making that covenant with you, and that's how you know it's going to happen. And then something shocking happens, right? God never asked Abraham to walk through the pieces. Instead, God himself passes through the pieces. So look at verse 17. It says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. So we see God in the form of this smoke and this torch, right? The same way that the Israelites followed God for 40 years throughout the desert, smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. We see God pass through the pieces when giving the, this oath to Abraham. So that's incredible because God didn't say, Abraham, you can have your children, but you better hold up your end of it. If you sin, you're going to become like these animals. If you break the covenant you're going to be torn to pieces. Instead, God was saying, I love you, and I want to bless you, and I'm going to bless you. And if you break this covenant, may I be torn into pieces. If you aren't righteous, if you sin, let, it, let me be these animal pieces, right? That's, that's the God of the universe is saying that. And that's, and that's him saying that I will die in your place so that this covenant is fulfilled because God does not break his covenants, right? And that's exactly what God did as Christ bore our sin. You see, that's the relentless love. The relentless love says, I am more glorious and more righteous than you can handle, more than you can fathom. And because I love you, let me be slaughtered in your place. Let me be that sacrifice. So that's a persevering, absolutely relentless love that God would walk through the pieces on our behalf. So that's the gospel, right? So let that sink in for a second. That's how we see all of the covenants that God has made, all of the Old Testament pointing to Christ. So we've seen how God's covenant with the Israelites reveals his unimaginable glory, his perfect righteousness, and his unrelenting love. But then how are we to respond? What do we, what do, we do about it? First, we must recognize that God, like we said, is more glorious than we can fathom. His glory fills a void that nothing else can. We, we see that anything we can possibly put before him, anything that we value more than him, 
all those idols that we're talking about, those, those, those carbon images, the looking up at the sun and the stars and, and you know, bowing to them, anything will fall short of the fulfillment of just being in a relationship with God. We see that God's perfect righteousness means that his precepts are necessarily perfect. To say this is to say this is to say that God's desires for us, so the commandments of Christ, while not are are perfect, sorry, uh, they're far more fulfilling than anything we idolize: money, relationship, sex, power, status, career. Those things that we do value over, over Christ, while not bad in and of themselves, will lead to our demise when they become more important than keeping Christ's commandments. However, when we realize that the fulfillment and the reflection of God's glory in keeping God's precept, the rules that Jesus Christ laid out for us, these laws that we tend to hate, they start to become kind of the antithesis of Kanye West's statement, right? Sin begins to actually disgust us because we know what it means. And this is exactly what our sin means. Our sin means that we broke the covenant. It means that because you got angry with your kids last night, or because you saw that cute girl walk into the church this morning and got a little carried away with your thoughts, or whatever it was, because of whatever sin you committed today or last night or will tomorrow, that's why Christ walked through the pieces. You see, we're not in a covenant of works, fearful of retribution from God for our sins, because Christ has already paid them. Jesus has left us with a covenant of grace. Our sins are canceled, and once we realize what it actually took for that to happen, once we see that this idea, this idea of the covenants in the Old Testament has always been pointing to Christ, we begin to see our desires become God's desires for us. We're no longer bound by a fear of proving ourselves worthy or righteous or a fear of retribution from God. So uh, I'm going to read you a quote. Puritan Stephen Charnock put it like this, and this is Old English, so... Listen carefully, because I'm going to mess it up. Uh, A legal or religious conviction of sin ariseth from a consideration of God's justice chiefly. An evangelical conviction of sin from a sense of God's goodness. A legally convinced person cries out, I have exasperated a power that is like the roaring of a lion. I have provoked the one that is the sovereign Lord of the heaven and earth, whose word can tear up the foundations of the world. But an evangelically convinced person cries I have incensed a goodness that is like the dropping of a dew. I have offended a God that had his hand stretched out to me as a friend. My heart must be made of marble. My heart must be made of iron to throw his blood in his face. Our inability to maintain our own righteousness is why God walked between the pieces. It's why Christ died for us. We see that God did not change between the Old and the New Testament. He's still the same. He still covenants with us. Only the bearer of that curse has changed, right? When we break a covenant, it's not us that suffers anymore. It's Christ. He atoned for our sins in our place, even though we still continually throw his blood in his face. So as you go, remember that. Reflect on the covenant that God made with Moses, and then consider the relentless love it took for the unimaginably glorious, perfectly righteous, great God of the universe to walk through the pieces for you. If you leave with that on your heart and reflect it, reflect on it throughout the day, I promise that you'll absolutely see a huge change in your life. You'll become more loving, more humble, more patient, and more accepting. Because Christ has freed us from ourselves. He's freed us from our desire to make these mud pies that C.S. Lewis uh, talks about, 
And instead, he gives us this freedom, this freedom to just be in relationship with him, to know that our sins are atoned for and that we're unconditionally loved and unconditionally accepted and the freedom to go out and do the same for others. So when Christ said, it is finished on the cross, he meant it. So, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, giving us giving us Deuteronomy, giving us uh, passages that we can learn from that reflect your character, Lord. I pray that, you know, as we go through this, I know we just barely scratch the surface of any of this, but, but that we, we go back and we read this and we see how you work and you have been working throughout millennia to redeem us, that everything in the Old Testament points to you, points to Christ. And I pray that this, uh, this good news frees us, frees us from our own desire to to be perfectly righteous ourselves and frees us from our own feelings of inadequacy or our own, own maybe longings for a life that we left behind. I pray that you just be with us today and make this gospel real. Make it sink in. And every time we hear the laws of the Old Testament, every time we see the covenants you made with Moses or Abraham or whomever, I, I pray that we're reminded of the covenant being fulfilled through Christ. I pray that this wrecks our hearts and that changes us for good. In your name. Amen.